Well, there's a popular story that you have undoubtedly heard. It was first published in 1905 in the New York Sunday World, and it goes something like this. Jim and his wife, Della, were recently married and living in a modest apartment. They only had two possessions between them, which they really took pride in. You recognize the story yet? Della's beautiful, long, flowing hair, almost touching her knees, and Jim's shiny gold watch that was given to him by his father and owned before that by his grandfather. And on Christmas Eve, Della only had a dollar and 87 cents in her hand. You, you realize this is 1905. So she only has a dollar and 87 cents, but she's desperate to find something for Jim, and not just any something, but something really, really nice. And so she sells her hair for $20 to a nearby hairdresser in order to purchase a platinum pocket chain for $21, just enough. Satisfied with the perfect gift for Jim, Della runs home and, be and begins to prepare dinner and prays that Jim will still find her attractive without her long hair. Usually late, Jim walks in and immediately stops short at the sight of Della. Della then admits to Jim that she sold her hair to buy him his present. Jim gives Della her present, an assortment of expensive hair accessories referred to as the combs. Oh, getting ahead of myself here. Unless now... No combs for him either. Unless now that hair is short, <clears throat> so it, it, there's no use for these combs, and they both are upset and dismayed, shed a few tears, and hold each other, but they recognize the love that each has for the other, the willingness to give up and to sacrifice something so dear and precious to them for somebody else. Now, when I first heard that story, I was in grade school, and they walked us down to the media room or media center, I don't know which, where they'd put on two old reels, and they would start it up, and it'd go, and when it was done, one reel would, would sometimes even come off and go, clack, 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 clack. I remember this story was really confusing to me. How dumb. They both had to give up, and they didn't have, and ugh, that's not a... A cozy, feel-good story at all. But really, it is a beautiful story of willing to pay a high price for somebody that you love. Amen. Thank you. Mahatma Gandhi, an Indian lawyer, politician, social activist, he says there are seven sins of the world. And maybe you're familiar with these as well. But in his seven sins, he lists them off. Wealth without work. Have you seen that? Pleasure without conscience. Knowledge without character. Commerce without morality. Science without humanity. Politics without principles. And worship without sacrifice. Today, do we see worship without sacrifice? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die daily. Sounds like some sacrifice. Luke 9, 23, if anyone, Jesus talking, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, 
and take up his cross daily and follow me. Also in Luke 14, 33, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And then Matthew 10, 38, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Now, all of that's pretty strong, isn't it? But it seems to talk of this idea that worship includes sacrifice. Now, we've been going through this series entitled just that, Sacrifice. And we've looked at a variety of things. The character of sacrifice. Abraham willing to put all on the altar to give what was dearest to him, his son, and his future. We looked at the sacrifice of relationships. How much we must be willing to put God above father and mother and sister and brother if necessary. We looked at physical sacrifice. Paul and Silas in a dungeon suffering physically for Christ. But in spite of that, they were found singing and praying and trusting in God. We looked at sacrifice of the son over communion. How Jesus gave all for you and for me. How he emptied himself with that costly, expensive gift. And to throw away our life would be disrespectful to the gift. We looked at the sacrifice of self-reliance. How the widow gave her two mites, all that she had. Not knowing how she would meet her own needs, but trusting God to provide for her. We talked about the sacrifice of means and pleasures. We looked at the rich young ruler and how nobody can serve God and money. How the secret is to focus on Jesus, not on stuff. And let Jesus manage our finances. Last week, we looked at the sacrifice of pride. We looked at Judas and Simon the leper as they looked down and judged and despised Mary Magdalene. In their pride, they were blind to their own sin, but were so good at spotting the sins of others. Yet in humility, it's Mary who truly saw Jesus. And she sacrificed her pride and gave her all. And so today's piece, sacrifice required, and then next week we're going to look at sacrifice for the gospel. And we're going to do something different. We're going to take up the offering after the sermon. We're going to file up here to the front. And we're going to place our our gifts for this annual sacrifice offering. But today, is sacrifice truly required? Is it necessary? Well, if you brought your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Chronicles. Not Corinthians, but 1 Chronicles, chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Now this story is also in the last chapter of 2 Samuel, chapter 24. We can find things there, and we'll refer to a few places there. But this morning we're going to look at the the bulk of our story here in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, beginning verse 1. It says, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. 
So here Satan is tempting David to do this thing, to take a census, to number Israel. And so David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba, far south, to Dan in the far north, and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. Now what's the matter with a simple census? I didn't know that was such a terrible thing. Well, first of all, it was the high priest that typically took the census, or the tribe of Levi, but here it's not that, it's, Dan, it's Joab, excuse me, his military officer, and he wants to know exactly how are we ranking out there. Let's take a poll. Anybody looked at any polls this last week? Let's take a poll and let's see how we're doing. Let's see how many, and this comes out later in the story, how many fighting men that we have. Let's maybe compare. When I started out as king, we had this much, and now at the end of my life, I want to see how have we done. And so there's an element of pride, there's an element of trusting in themselves to see how much military might they truly have, and in the process of all that, they're not really trusting God. God didn't order for this census. And Joab, verse 3, answered, May the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. King David, I hope that the Lord blesses our people. Don't get me wrong. But my Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should he be a curse, sorry, a cause of guilt in Israel? King David, I don't want you to be a cause of guilt for Israel. Why are you asking me to do this thing? Nevertheless, verse 4, the king's word prevailed against Joab. That has a tendency to happen if you haven't noticed. The king's word prevails. I'm the king, you are subordinate to me, and I told you to take this census, therefore you will take it. So David pulls rank, and Joab goes out for this census. Patriarchs and Prophets 747 says, with a view to extending his conquests among foreign nations, David determined to increase his army by requiring military service from all who were of proper age. To effect this, it became necessary to take a census of the population. It was pride and ambition that prompted this action of the king. David hadn't sacrificed his pride yet. And so here we find this king in this situation. An unaccountable life is a dangerous life. What do you mean? Why do I have to be accountable? I'm the king. Nobody tells me what to do. Friends, an unaccountable life is a dangerous life. As soon as we think we are above reproach, that is beyond us to fall into any temptation, that accountability is not necessary for me, I become vulnerable. I'm treading on dangerous ground. Is a coworker, a boss, a husband, a wife, a leader, a pastor ever above accountability? Friends, if I am a follower of Christ... Don't I want to be held accountable to God's word? Don't I want to be held accountable to the body, to the church? 
Far be it from me that I should ever disdain accountability. For when I do, I am heading into dangerous territory. Yes, an unaccountable life is a dangerous life. Are you accountable to anyone? Is anybody asking you the tough questions? And if so, how often? Accountability is powerful if you use it. And so we continue on in our story, beginning verse 5. We'll go back to verse 4. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David. All Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword. Notice what the priority is here. I want to know how many are fighting people. Verse 6, but he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. And God was displeased, verse 7, with this thing. Therefore he struck Israel. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing, but now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. It says it another way in the account in 2 Samuel 24, and David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. I believe this is why David was a man after God's own heart. He was far from perfect. But we see David pour out his soul in genuine repentance on more than one occasion. The word for troubled here is a severe word. It's nakah, which means to be attacked, to be assaulted, to be wounded or crippled. Deep inside, David was hurting. And so he prays to the Lord in heartfelt repentance. Something else we can gather from this story, repentance puts you on the road to recovery. Until I get to that point, I'm still in trouble. Until re remembrance is embraced, recovery is not possible. You go to any 12-step program, and until you're able to say, Hi, my name is David, and I have an issue with, there's nothing they can do for you. It's that first step to recognizing that we are wrong. As David said, I have sinned how much? Greatly, he says. Why have I done this thing? The only reason is my own pride. I've done very foolishly. Please, Lord, please forgive me. I wonder how often we need this same attitude in our church. The same attitude of repentance. In a lot of churches, they don't like to use the word. Repent? Seems like it's a dirty word. No, repentance is necessary. And it's needed. Quote here from Christian Service. Christians should be prepared for what is soon to break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. And this preparation they should make by, one, diligently studying the Word of God, 
and two, striving to conform their lives to its precepts. God calls for a revival and a reformation. A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our first work. The time has come for a thorough reformation to take place. When this reformation begins, the spirit of prayer will actuate every believer and will banish from the church the spirit of discord and strife. Friends, if there is discord and strife in the church, that means we need revival and reformation. That's what it means. Because as long as we are, are, are repentant, as long as we are looking unto Jesus, as long as we are looking for revival and reformation, and Jesus to come in, studying his word, asking how can I live that out in my life, and I come to him in prayer, all of this discord and strife is just going to go away. But we don't want to talk about repentance, revival. Pastor, you're assuming that I need something that I don't already have. What did Paul say? I die yearly, monthly, daily. So we continue on our story in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, another way of saying a prophet of the Lord, saying, go and tell David, saying, thus says the Lord. I offer you three things, choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. No other place that I'm aware of in Scripture does God give an option. I know my dad used to give me an option. We used to get in trouble, and he'd say, okay, David, you need to choose the punishment for yourself. And if it was too small, he'd say, nope, you need to do better than that. And so here, God is saying, you have three options. You get to choose one, David. So Gad came to David and said to him, thus says the Lord, choose for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be defeated by your foes with a sword of your enemies overtaking you, or else three days the sword of the Lord. The plague in the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider that answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. If I have a choice, put me in the hand of God, the merciful hand of God. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. Patriarchs and prophets says this, referring to that 70,000 men. That's a big number. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of graves to dig. They had themselves cherished the same sins that prompted David's action. Friends, if you haven't figured it out already, sin pays a terrible wage. One does not sin without leaving an awful wake. How often would we disdain from sin if we could see a glimpse of the grief it would bring to others and the toll it would take on ourselves, our family, and those around us? 
No, David is in great distress. The Hebrew word means to be tied up, restricted, cramped, to be churning inside, tied up in knots. Have you been there? How miserable David must have felt knowing that his failures caused their pain and their loss. It's almost more than he can bear. The devastation of his own act of foolishness. And so verse 15, and God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And he was destroying, and as, sorry, as he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying, it is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. It is enough. Now this threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite is an important place. In fact, if we look at 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Remember Mount Moriah? Abraham, Isaac, the sacrifice? where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And so for three reasons, this threshing floor is important. That's where Abraham offered Isaac, where his faith was supremely tested. That is also the same place now in this story where we are, that God wants David to build a never-to-be-forgotten memorial. And thirdly, it's where Solomon will erect the temple. That's where we are in this story. And so verse 16, Then David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. And so David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell on their faces, and David said to God, Was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? I am the one who has sinned and have done evil indeed, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, O Lord, my God, be against me and my father's house, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. Therefore, the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And we read how David went. He's extremely obedient at this point. He goes, and he goes to Ornan in verse 22. He says, grant me the place of this threshing floor. And Ornan is so generous. He says, absolutely. You not only can have this place, but you can have this, these animals to sacrifice, this oxen, and you can use all the tools and the implements, the wood to burn the sacrifice. I give it all to you, it says in the end of verse 23. I give it to you. But then verse 24, then King David said to Ornan, no, but I will surely buy it for the full price. For I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels. It's about 15 pounds of gold. It's about $285,000 today. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings, and peace offerings. 
and called on the Lord, and he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offering. Verse 27, so the Lord commanded the angel, and he returned his sword into his sheath. This is just the opposite of what Saul does. This idea, I will not offer something that did not cost me something. Just the opposite of what Saul does. You remember the story? Through Samuel, God tells Saul to completely blot out the Amalekites, to destroy all people, all animals, to bring back nothing. He's very plain. He's very clear. And then he confronts Saul. He says, Saul, Saul says, I perform the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? Do you remember that story? Did you blot everything out? I did. I was faithful. I did just as you asked me to do. Then what's that, that sound that I hear? And then when he confronts him, Saul turns and says, well, the people, not me, it's the people took of the plunder, the sheep, the auction, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord. Saul wants to use the spoils of war so as not to sacrifice his own. Yet David is fully unwilling to offer something to the Lord that cost him nothing. And both still exist in the church today. But I would submit to you, true worship requires sacrifice. True worship requires sacrifice. What did Paul say? I die daily. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Let him sacrifice himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Forsake, deny, push away, sacrifice, put everything else second in place of me. You're not worthy. Cannot be my disciple. And he who does not take his cross and fall after me is not worthy. Again, says in Matthew 10, 38. No sacrifice is required. Back this summer, at the end of this summer, some of you recognize these two. Uh, the family up in the top corner is Andrew Korzanowski and his wife Jessica and Ava and Emma. Uh, they go to the Fletcher Church, work at Park Ridge with some of you that are here today. And then Mark and Stephanie Merle are on the, the bottom end. I actually went to school with Andrew, and Mark is Elizabeth's second cousin. And Stephanie and their two girls, Monroe and McKinley, and Mark was able to get to know Andrew when he came to Park Ridge Health, and he was kind of helping him get to know how things function and work there at the hospital, and then they both ended up at the same church there at Fletcher. But what most did not know was that Andrew suffered from kidney failure for nearly two decades. But in the past year, he started to feel really bad. He says, I couldn't keep up with my girls. We'd be jumping on the trampoline. I could hardly, you know, I had to stop and rest. It was getting really bad. Nobody in Andrew's family was a match for kidney. 
But then Mark decided, I'm going to check this out and see if I'm a match. He got tested. Sure enough, Mark was a match. Several times, Andrew said he tried to talk Mark out of it. He says, look, I'll give you my kidney. We can do this. This will work. They say, I'm a match. And he says, you don't realize this is a major surgery. This is a big deal. You don't just pass this over. And Andrew said, I tried to talk Mark out of it. I said, look, this is incredible. This is a big risk. This is a major operation. And he says, I tried to change his mind on more than one occasion. And finally, he submitted. He says, well, Mark, if this is really what you want to do, but if at any point you change your mind, you're, you're more than able. I, I'm perfectly fine with you just saying, okay, I, I changed my mind. We're not going to do it. That'll be fine. But Mark didn't change his mind, and Andrew's ability to hold off surgery was quickly coming to an end. And so they traveled to Vanderbilt in Nashville. And on July 28th of this year, the surgery was done. And from the moment Andrew woke up, he said he felt better. He said, I, I, I knew I had more energy. And of course, over time, he continued to, to get stronger and stronger. And Mark visited Andrew just hours after the surgery, and Andrew said, all I could do was hug him. I really didn't have words, he says. I was looking at the man who had given me back my life. Now each is doing very well, and Andrew is able to keep up with his kids, and Mark is recovering well. And the story is reported in Southern Tidings. Maybe you got to look at it and read it. The title of the story there is The in Incredible Gift. <clears throat> My simple question is, what makes the gift so incredible? Could it be the sacrifice? Could it be? He didn't ask for a popsicle. Friends, what sacrifices are you willing to make? Because really, it's the sacrifices of life that give life meaning. Sacrifice is selflessness. It's putting another above and first, ahead of yourself. It's providing for the needs of another at your own expense. That's sacrifice. What does John 15, 13 say? Greater love hath no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. It was already mentioned this morning, yesterday a movie came out called Hacksaw Ridge. Sadly, it's rated R for violence. I've been told it's a rather grisly portrayal of the awful carnage of war. Yet in the story, our world's going to be confronted with a powerful story of a man named Desmond Doss. In fact, at its world premiere on September 4 of this year, at the 73rd Venice Film Festival, it received a 10-minute standing ovation. That tells you something. Desmond Doss, you may recall, enlisted voluntarily into World War II in April of 1942. And because of his religious convictions as a Seventh-day Adventist, Doss refused to carry a weapon. Rather, he carried the title Conscientious Objector. And this was something that he suffered for. As the men in the platoon saw him as a coward, as they hazed him and singled him out, threw boots at him while he was trying to pray, heckled him. 
Yet over time, his platoon started to respect Doss. In fact, getting to the point they'd refuse to go into war or into battle until Doss was done praying. And it was there on that South Pacific island in Okinawa that his platoon was given the task to overtake this jagged escarpment 400 feet high. As it was there, they were under heavy machine gun fire. These are actually some of the guys from his own platoon. And here they are, also in Okinawa, setting off these 4.2 mortars, which are bombs that they lob uh, some distance. But Doss refused to seek cover in this battle and remained in the fire-swept area, carrying all 75 casualties one by one to the edge of the escarpment and lowering them down on a rope-supported stretcher down the face of the cliff to friendly hands. Now, I served as a student missionary not far from this place. And if you've been in any island in the Pacific, but when you see the destruction that's done in these pictures, there's nothing. There's just sand, there's just dirt, there's just rubble. On another occasion, Doss advanced through a shower of grenades to within eight yards of enemy forces in a cave. He dressed his comrades' wounds before making four separate trips under fire to evacuate them safely. On another occasion, it happened all the time, an American was severely wounded by fire. Doss crawled to him where he had fallen, just 25 feet from the enemy position, rendered aid, and carried him 100 yards to safely while continually exposing himself to enemy fire. Later in a night attack, separate incidents altogether, he remained in exposed territory while the rest of his company took cover. But he fearlessly gave aid to the injured, until he was himself seriously wounded in the legs by an explosion of a grenade. And rather than call for another man to cover him, to come for his aid, he decided, I'll care for my own injuries. And he waited five hours for stretcher bears to come. And this is the part that Mel Gibson said he could not include because it sounded too unbelievable. But when the stretcher bears were carrying him to cover. Doss, seeing a more critically wounded man nearby, crawled off the stretcher and directed the bears to give their first attention to the other man. Awaiting the stretcher bears' return, he was again struck by a sniper bullet while being carried off the field by a comrade, this time suffering a compound fracture of one arm. Yet he still keeps that sheepish sheepish little grin. With magnificent fortitude, he found a rifle stock and he attached it to his shattered arm as a splint and then crawled 300 yards over rough terrain to the aid station. His name became a symbol throughout the 77th Infantry Division for outstanding gallantry far above and beyond the call of duty for which he became the first conscientious objector to receive the Congressional Medal of Honor. By President Truman. And here is his son, Desmond Doss Jr., checking out this Congressional Medal of Honor. And here's he and his wife as they're leaving Woodrow Wilson Hospital. 
he actually came here to Asheville one time. And uh, for a time, his wife Dorothy worked with Elizabeth's grandmother up here at Mission Hospital in Asheville. But Das understood that sacrifice was required. Das had a character of sacrifice. Das sacrificed means and pleasures. He sacrificed relationships. He sacrificed self-reliance and pride. He even sacrificed physically, risking his life time and time and time again. He realized sacrifice was required. And if we stop and think about it, sacrifice is required for succeeding in school. It's required for starting a business. Sacrifice is required for building a home, for a happy marriage, for raising children. And when it comes to God, how could I give Him that which costs me nothing? No, in genuine worship and praise to God, it's no different. Sacrifice is required. And I believe when Jesus created mankind that he might have companionship with somebody else, I believe he could see the incredible sacrifice required. But he saw you, and he saw me, and he said, it's worth it. It's worth it. I will sacrifice myself, my all, that we might live in relationship for eternity. It's worth it. It's worth the sacrifice. And today it's our turn. It's our turn to give our all. To ask the Lord to develop in us that character of sacrifice. Only God can do it. That we too might sacrifice our means and pleasures and relationships if necessary and reliance on self and spiritual pride and even physically. Lord, I'll sacrifice anything and everything. Why? Ephesians 5, 2. Walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. Why is simple? Because the sacrifice of the Son of God that gives us life, that gives it life more abundantly, that's why. And it's counterintuitive. But when we give everything, I believe we gain everything. Mark 8, 35, we've been looking at this verse in this series. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Friends, I'm begging you. Lose your life in Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. Sacrifice self for Jesus that you may live life to the fullest. Our dearest Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you will forgive us for our offering and for our gifts that cost us nothing.
Forgive us for our selfishness and our pride. And make us willing by the indwelling of your Holy Spirit to sacrifice all for you. That in so doing, we may find what life is all about. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.